This morning's reading will be John 3, 1 through 15. Um, it is page 740 in the blue Bible in front of you. <clears throat> now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are teaching teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old, Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it, it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we are and we testify to what we have seen. But still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever come into heaven except the man who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Thank you, Jamie. Uh, keep your Bibles open there to John 3. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, and I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Father, this is your word. This is your people. Uh, we just pray that you would teach and speak and move during this time to the glory of your name. And we ask all this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, on Thursday nights during football season, uh, there's some friends and family of mine that have a tradition that I become quite fond of. Because uh, every Thursday night there's an NFL game on. And so uh, my cousins open up their home and a group of us go over there to watch the game and eat, and the strong emphasis on the word eat there. Because um, in recent years, what they've been doing, they're trying to theme the food of the night based on the cities that's playing. And so my favorite Thursdays are the nights that Kansas City Chiefs play. Uh, because Kansas City is known for barbecue, and so whenever they play on Thursday nights, we call that night Meat Fest. And it's as glorious as it sounds, okay? This, this involves 12 to 14 hours of smoking meat before people even get there, and it's just wonderful, right? Uh, but one of the things I enjoy most about the nights is just the people. Uh, some of them I knew well before we started doing this. Some of them I had never met before. Uh, and so doing this every Thursday night in the fall has, has just really deepened some relationships. But I remember one Thursday in particular, it was a, it was a pretty boring second half of uh, the game because Thursday night games are never really that good. Um, and I saw Eric, the guy who hosted and Kurt, one of his lifelong friends, sitting at a table. And I thought, I'm, I'm going to go over there and sit down and hang out with them uh, for this half and, you know, just see what they're talking about. And so when I sat down, they were already in a conversation. And Eric designs steel manufacturing. He draws plans for steel construction. Uh, I'm sure he does other things that I don't understand at all, right? And, and Kurt's an engineer. 
And so when I sit down at this table, uh, they're talking about work-related things. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. I felt like I'd sat down at a table in a foreign country. Um, I'm, I'm relatively certain they were speaking English, but I can't go 100% on that, okay? Because the things they were talking about were just so foreign to me, so outside of my realm of experience, so above me that I got none of it. There might have been talk at one point of a, of a U-joint, fabricating a U-joint, but I can't say for certain because I don't even know if that's a thing, right? Um, but I would say that I've never felt dumber than I did in that moment, but there are so many times in my life that I've felt dumb that I don't think it's responsible to rank them in front of you, uh, especially put one higher than the rest, um, but today in John 3, we're going to look at a conversation between Jesus and a leader of Israel, right? And for the entirety of the conversation, everything that Jesus tells him will go right over this guy's head. He won't get it. He won't understand it. He will sound and act just like I sounded and acted at that table. But the difference between he and I, though, is that he should have understood it. Right? It shouldn't have been beyond him. And Jesus says so right in the middle of the conversation, and one of the neat things that we'll see as we go through John is eventually this guy will get it. He'll eventually understand. And so what we want to do today is to walk you through this story, walk you through this conversation, and make sure that all of us understand what Jesus is saying to not repeat the mistake of this man. Because the implications of what Jesus is saying in this chapter don't just change everything for this man he's talking to. It changes everything for all time. The implications of what Jesus is saying is the most important thing that we could ever grasp. And so we got to get this right. And so let's dive in. Verse 1 of chapter 3 that, that Jamie read for you, we introduced to a man named Nicodemus. And there are a couple uh, distinguishing identifiers that John gives us about this man. The first he tells us is that Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Right? Now the Pharisees were the most influential sect of Judaism in that time. Uh, in fact, there are about 6,000 of these guys at the time of Jesus. And they are most widely known. Their, their claim to fame was that they had the strictest interpretation of the Old Testament law... And they had the greatest zeal in following it. They wanted to follow that law better than anybody. Now on top of that, Nicodemus is also, we're told, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is what is known as the Sanhedrin. Now if the Pharisees were the most influential sect of Judaism, the Sanhedrin's another level up. Right? Because there are 6,000 Pharisees. There are only 70 men allowed to be on the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the ruling council of the Jewish people in both religious and civil affairs. It was the Sanhedrin that would be responsible for all the religious decisions for the Jews. And in addition to that, at this time in history, under the rule of the Roman Empire, Rome had so much land to keep track of. Rome had, had occupied so much territory that they stayed hands off with their conquered territories as long as two things happened. As long as the Jews paid their taxes and as long as they couldn't, didn't try to cause a riot or revolt against Rome, they would just, Rome didn't care. They just leave them alone. And so what Rome did was they left the Sanhedrin in, tar in charge of the civil rule of the Jews as well. And so in this system at this time, the, the Sanhedrin at the time of Jesus had more power than at any point in Jewish history. And it's going to be clear in the book of John as we go through it that they really liked that power. They coveted that power. They, they wanted to protect that power at all costs. Okay, and so this is... This is, when, when we've seen Nicodemus here, this is no normal Jewish guy coming to see Jesus here in John 3. This is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Sanhedrin. He was kind of a big deal. Right? He had many leather-bound books. His apartment smelled of rich mahogany. Okay? I lost about 95% of you that joke. I'm willing, I'm willing to pay that price for those of you who got it. Okay? This guy was a Jewish superstar. Okay? And in verse 2, he comes to Jesus at night, we're told. Now, John doesn't go any farther than that. He doesn't tell us why he came at night. It's possible that this was innocent. It's possible that this was just the time of day that he had open, but I don't believe that. Because you see, John 
includes the details in his book for a reason. And we're going to see as we go through John 3 and 4 over the next few Sundays, you'll get a good sense of the themes that John is building in his book. And night and darkness always have a sinister undertone in the book of John. So the most likely scenario is this. Nicodemus is not acting on behalf of the entire Sanhedrin here. He's acting in secret. He's curious. Okay, he wants to know more, give him that much credit, but he comes under the cover of darkness when no one else would see or notice him talking to Jesus, and he wants it to be that way. He doesn't want them to know he's searching. And look at how he butters Jesus up. He comes in, Rabbi, we know, get it? We know that you are a teacher who's come from God. Nobody could do the things that you're doing if God was not with them. And right away, you, you know this is going to be a fascinating conversation. Nicodemus is about to have his mind blown, and he doesn't know it yet. He has no idea what he's just walked into. Because he opens this conversation with what he thinks is a great compliment. It's just that he's talking to the one person this wouldn't be a compliment to. Jesus is no rabbi. He's not a teacher. He's the God of the universe. God isn't somehow helping Jesus. He is God. And so for the rest of this conversation, you're going to see Jesus out in front and Nicodemus just scrambling to keep up. And it all starts right here. It's because he doesn't know who Jesus is. And in verse 3, Jesus just grabs hold of and takes command of the conversation. Look what he says, John 3, verse 3. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. One question, what in the world is Jesus talking about? I mean, think about it. There, there are times in the Gospels where Jesus is having a conversation with someone, and you're like, is Jesus even listening to them? Because look at the flow of this conversation. Nicodemus strolls up. We know that you're from God. You're doing all these cool things. And Jesus is like, yeah, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. That's, that's not even on topic. And Nicodemus, he's trying to butter up Jesus. He's, but Jesus grabs this conversation. And this is not the only time in the Gospels he does this. Right? And this is Why? It's because he knows what Nicodemus is here for. And so this opening by Nicodemus, this, though tactful and meant to be nice, Jesus has no time for that fluff. He's just too efficient. So he wants to get right to it. All right, let me put it this way. This may help you understand it. Thursday morning, uh, this last week, right before I left to work, our five-year-old Gemma came up to me. And this is what she said. She said, Daddy, you're the bestest daddy in the world. And I love you so much, and I'm going to give you a great big hug now. I mean, that's a moment, right? That's just so sweet. You're gonna, that's something I should carry to my grave and always remember. But she wasn't done. No, she wasn't done. Right? Because what came out of her mouth next was this. And while I'm hugging you, you can think about whether or not I can have a snack. Now, this might make me a bad parent, but I was really proud of her. Because right, that's just a heady play, right? That's just knowing how to play the game. And now, if I was Jesus, here's how this conversation would have went. Daddy, you're the best, Daddy. You can't have a snack, Gemma. Right? Because he would just seen right through all the fluff, all the interest. He would know exactly what she was coming for. And Nicodemus is a teacher. He's curious. He's fascinated. And he's seeking. And he wants to know. Ultimately, what he wants to know is, what are you teaching, Jesus? What is this message that you're proclaiming? And so Jesus steps right over the intro and he tells Nicodemus, let's just do this. Let's just get to why you came. And I'd also like to think that Jesus did this immediately to signify to Nicodemus right off the start. Guess what, Nicodemus? You're not on my level. You see, if you or I do that, that's prideful or arrogant. Because other people are on our level. But Jesus revealing to us that we're not on his level is not only true, it's gracious. 
Did you know there's a lot of pain, there's a lot of heartache, there's a lot of self-inflicted wounds that, that go out of your life whenever you remain convinced that you are not on Jesus' level and you never will be? If this is one of the first times you've ever been here, or you've been in church your whole life, you must know this, you are not on Jesus' level. He's ahead of you, he's above you, he's holier than you, he's wiser than you, he's more powerful than you, he's bigger than you, he's greater than you in every way imaginable. You're not on his level, so be sure to position your life appropriately, set up your life underneath him. Will you take your lead from him? That the things that he says are not suggestions that, you can, be, that can be ignored, but commands from one in authority over you. Nicodemus comes up with all his pomp. He's this Pharisee. He's this member of the Sanhedrin. He's the superstar of the Jews. He's got his impressive resume and so, and in one line, Jesus lets him know, yeah, you're not on my level. And he doesn't just show Nicodemus this by, by revealing he knows why Nicodemus came. He shows Nicodemus this by telling him what his message is. This is what I'm teaching. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. You want to see God's kingdom, Nicodemus? You want to be a part of what he's building? You want to go to heaven? You must be born again, Jesus says. Now, the English there is a little weak because the Greek, there, the Greek word there means to be born again from above. Okay, so the only way that you can see God's kingdom is to be reborn again from above. And Nicodemus doesn't get this at all. Wait, how, how can somebody be born again? And, and he's got a pretty funny observation. He's like, it's not like they can crawl back into the womb. Right? And in his defense, it's a pretty weird concept if you don't understand what Jesus is saying. And so Jesus, holding to patience here, explains it further. Look at verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must, not, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Jesus starts the conversation. No one can enter the kingdom without being born again. Nicodemus is confused, so Jesus goes further and he tells him that no one can enter the kingdom of God unless you are born of water and the Spirit. Now, there are multiple theories out there as to what Jesus meant by that statement. There are two that make sense. And there are only two that make sense because they align themselves with the rest of the Bible. That's a good hint for you. It's a good thing to remember. If you're, trying, if you're ever trying to figure out what a verse in the Bible means, it will never mean something that contradicts what the rest of the Bible has told you. Okay, so the first of the two possibilities that Jesus is referring to here is that he's referring to both a physical birth and then a spiritual birth. That being born of water, Jesus is talking about being born physically and then being born of the Spirit is that second birth he already referred to in verse 3. That is a solid, good biblical interpretation. I've got no problems with that. I like the second theory, however. And I like it because I think it takes into mind the context of the book that we're reading and everything that we've been told in John so far. And the second idea is this, that when Jesus refers to being born of water in the Spirit, he's talking about two different aspects of this new birth. Because in John 3, whenever Jesus would say the word water, there's one thing that both he and Nicodemus would likely think about, and that is the ministry of John the Baptist. Where John is baptizing people in water, the people of God, to prepare them for the kingdom of God. Now what Jesus is not saying is this, he's not saying that baptism is required for salvation. He's not saying that you need to be baptized to go to heaven because that would contradict the rest of the Bible. 
No Old Testament saints, the thief on the cross next to Jesus, none of them would be in heaven if that were the case. Because the biblical standard for all time is a humble repentance of our sins and obedience towards the truth of God. Because that is what John's baptism and ministry was all about. John the Baptist was sent to prepare people for Jesus and God's kingdom by calling them to do one thing, to repent. His baptism was never about new life. It was always about death. It was to get them to die to self. It was, to, it was getting them to die to sin, to die to their old ways, to die to the idea that they could be God or reach God on their own. So he called them to repent or turn from their sins. And so Jesus could be telling Nicodemus here that to be born again, you must first repent, which means to turn in sorrow from your sins. Repenting is humbling yourself before God and admitting that you need him. Repenting is admitting that you're a sinner and you have nothing to offer him. And if this happens, Jesus says, then you are born of the Spirit. This is when God's presence literally comes and dwells in you, giving you brand new life in him. That's why he refers to it as being born again. It's a new start with the Spirit of God. And the person born of both water and the Spirit is the one who enters God's kingdom. And then Jesus, for all his patience, starts to reveal a moderate level of frustration with Nicodemus. Because he tells him in verse 7, you shouldn't be surprised by this. You shouldn't be confused by this. You shouldn't be lost by this idea of being born again. And then in verse 8, he begins to talk to him about wind. And again, we, we miss some of the wordplay going on here when we read this in English. Because throughout the Bible, right, the, word, the English words that we use for wind and breath and spirit, they're all the same word in the Hebrew and the Greek. In the New Testament, the Greek, it's the word pneuma. And so Jesus keeps using this one word to prove this point. When it comes to the wind and the spirit, man controls neither. Right? I mean, that's undeniable. This is what he's saying to Nicodemus. The wind blows wherever it wants, Nicodemus. Right? It happens and you have no say over it. You can't tell the wind to go over there and it goes over there. It happens. You, you might see the effects of the wind. You might hear the effects of the wind. But you don't know where it came from and you don't know where it's going from there. And it's the same with the Spirit. Because God is God. And what God does, you have no say over You don't get to manipulate God, Nicodemus. You don't get to tell him what to do. And most of the time, you won't even understand what he's doing because you're not him. Now, in verse 9, we see that this explanation hasn't landed with Nicodemus. He's just as confused as if he was, if more so, because he asked, how can this be? Read there in 2016, what in the world are you talking about, Jesus? And Jesus continues in verse 10. He digs deeper. You're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? By the way, if you don't understand what's going on here, this is getting pretty tense. Jesus digs in, hold on a minute. You're on the Sanhedrin. You're, You're a teacher of the people of Israel, and you don't get this? And his frustration is this, as a member of the Pharisees and a member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus would know the Old Testament scripture as well. And so to us, reading this 2,000 years later, some of this conversation seems pretty ideological or philosophical or somewhat confusing, but Nicodemus would not get that. Nicodemus would know very well the book of Isaiah. He knows very well all the prophecies of Ezekiel. He's likely memorized all the teachings of Joel. And so he would know all the times in the Old Testament that God used his prophets to proclaim the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. 
There was a time coming when the Messiah was there in the new covenant that God's spirit would move on the earth like the wind and do amazing things. And Jesus has come to establish that God's kingdom. He is the Messiah. He's here for the new covenant. So this concept shouldn't be this grand mystery to Nicodemus. God's been telling his people for hundreds of years this is coming. And then he hits Nicodemus right where it hurts. He tells them, listen, I've tried to explain this to you using earthly terms. I talked about birth. Everybody understands birth. I talked about the wind. Everybody knows what the wind is. And this is what Jesus is saying. I gave you the dumbed down version of this. And you still don't understand it? Now, that's not an insult to Nicodemus. Okay, that's, that is an insult to Nicodemus. But the thrust of what Jesus was pointing out is this in verse 11. He says the reason that Nicodemus and the reason all his buddies there in the Sanhedrin don't get this is because they refuse to accept who he is. Now, this is fascinating because this is still early in the book of John. Jesus and the Sanhedrin haven't butted heads yet, but Jesus is telling Nicodemus right here in advance that Sanhedrin will stubbornly refuse to accept who Jesus is, and that because of that, what we read for the rest of the book of John, they will stay in the dark to understanding what God is doing. They won't get it. And here's why it's because they have so much to lose. Now, you and I both know, don't we, that if they would just surrender their lives to Jesus, they had everything to gain. But in order to gain everything, first, they have much to lose. And so they miss out on what Jesus can do because they don't want to lose what they already have. And man, we do that mistake all the time today. See, to us, this might be a confusing conversation. I'll I'll own that. There's some analogies here that are tough, but Jesus chose his words very carefully here because he had a reason for every single analogy he used. Because Nicodemus didn't just come to him at night, he came to Jesus as one who was still enveloped in spiritual darkness. Because as a member of the Pharisees and a member of the Sanhedrin, there were these pillars in Nicodemus' life. There were these things in his life that caused him great pride. And ultimately his faith was in those things. And the the first thing that Nicodemus valued greatly was his birth. You see, the Pharisees held in the highest esteem the birth of any pure-blooded Israelite. Because to them, any direct descendant of Abraham was guaranteed privilege and honor from God. If you were a direct descendant of Abraham, right, it made you better than everyone else. It guaranteed you the favor of God on your life more than everyone else. And in their mind, only pure-blooded Jews would ever see the kingdom of God. And what's the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth to this man? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Your birth, your position, right, your genetic history as a direct descendant of Abraham means nothing. If you think that's somehow guaranteeing your entry to heaven, you're sadly mistaken, Nicodemus. You don't put your faith in your first birth. What you need is born to be born again with a birth that is predicated by repentance and a birth that comes from heaven above. What you need, Jesus tells Nicodemus, is heaven to come to you. You see, everything in Nicodemus' life, everything in the religious culture of that day was built on mankind getting to heaven. The Jews not only had the Old Testament law that God gave to Moses, but the Pharisees and others had written in 700 additional laws and customs that they added in. And as a member of the Pharisees, Nicodemus would have followed these strictly with more zeal than the average person. Because he would have believed that it was by keeping this law that he had earned the favor of God in his life. That his entire standing, his, his entire faith, his entire relation with God was based on him going up. It was based on him doing enough to appease God. It was based on him making the move towards God. And Jesus tells him, no, no, no. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless God comes to them. 
Because to be born again from above, Jesus is talking about God coming down and giving people new life in Jesus Christ. See, Nicodemus and his buddies had positioned themselves as the ones in control. They were the ones in control of the spiritual climate of Israel. They were the ones in control of their relationship with God. They were the ones in control of their eternity. And Jesus tells them, you have no idea what you're talking about. In fact, for you to ever see God's kingdom, in order for you to ever get to heaven, you've got everything backwards. It's in submitting to who I am. It's in being reborn by God, not by anything you've done. It's in recognizing that God's in control always. It's in humbling yourself before him. That's how you find life. And this new birth is necessary, Jesus says. It's the only way to heaven, but it's also a mystery. You don't control it, Nicodemus. You don't manipulate it. You can't steer it. It's the work of God and his word. James chapter 1 verse 18 says of God, he says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23 says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. In John 16, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit will come and convict the world of sin, of God's righteousness, and of the coming judgment. And so when the word of God combines with the spirit of God, people are reborn. The word that tells them the truth of Jesus is empowered by God's spirit and people respond in faith. And you can't control this, Nicodemus. It's necessary. It's mysterious. Listen, I, I'm going I'm to own it. I don't know why some people freely surrender to Jesus and find the hope and joy and life and forgiveness he offers. And why some people get chance after chance after chance and revist, refuse and resist and refuse to submit to him. I don't know why and I don't trust anyone who claims to. Because grace is a mystery. And so we have to be okay with that and proclaim God's word every chance we get. Which is why you will not come into this building without us opening the word of God with you. Otherwise, what are we doing other than wasting your time? And Jesus lands his heaviest punch with this. He says, Nicodemus, you all don't get this, and as long as you refuse to accept who I am, you never will. You never will. As long as your faith remains in your identity and in your genetics and in your ability to keep a law and all the good things you do, as long as your trust is in you, you will remain in the dark. You will never understand what God is doing. You will never realize what he's offering. But if you surrender your life to me with the new birth and the help of the Spirit, you'll get it. So to put this in language that we can understand today, let's just say it this way. A whole lot of the Bible is only understood when we obey it. Something you don't understand about the Bible, just obey it. It'll become clear to you. Because God for all eternity has required that we respond to him in humble faith. And then he removes scales. Then he enlightens us. Then he, then he takes up residence inside of us. Then we get it. But we must respond in humility and faith and obedience first. God is not and will not ever be your puppet. He's not somebody to negotiate with. You meet him on his terms. And you're going to find God to be as gracious and as loving as a being could possibly be. You demand that he meet you on your terms. You ask God to, to check off your list first, that he has to pass all your tests and then you believe in him? Well, that's not going to end well for you. That won't ever end well for you. And Jesus continues for Nicodemus. Look at verse 13. He says, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus tells Nicodemus, guess what, for all your efforts... 
For all this stuff that you guys are doing, there's never been a single one of you who has gone into heaven and came back to give a clear teaching on what God wants. But guess what? I came from there. So what I say is true. And you know, you can know it's true because it comes from me. You may be a Pharisee, Nicodemus, you may be a member of the Sanhedrin, but guess what? I'm from heaven. I win that one. And then he tells Nicodemus why he came. You want to know what my teaching is? You want to know why I came? This is why. And he mentions a story that Nicodemus would know very well. God records this story for us in the 21st chapter of the book of Numbers. And it takes place when the people of Israel are traveling through the desert after they've left Egypt. And at some point in this journey, the people of Israel sin against God. They just get sick of what's going on. They lose faith. They lose their trust in God. They openly rebel against him. They begin to complain and whine about their lot in life. They begin to complain to Moses. They begin to whine about everything they're doing with. They begin to play the victim. They whine about everything that God has done. And so in Numbers 21.6, it says that the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. Aren't you glad you're in the new covenant? And these snakes bit people, and their poison venom was killing people. And so the people came to Moses, and they fell down before him. They repented and said, we were wrong. We were wrong when we sinned and when we spoke against the Lord. Take away the snakes. So Moses prays to God, and God tells Moses, here's what you got to do. I want you to make a snake, a fake one. Put it up on a pole where everyone can see. And then when anyone is bitten, if they just look at the pole, they're going to live and not die. Even though they were bit, right? Even though the bite was guaranteed to be fatal. Even though death is a guaranteed deal. If they just look at the pole, they're still going to live. And what Jesus is telling Nicodemus is this. That for all of your trust in your genetic history, all your trust in your ability to keep a law, right? You've grossly underestimated one thing. You're a sinner, Nicodemus. And that disease is fatal. And your sin is what will keep you from me. Your sin is what will kill you. Your sin is what will keep you out of heaven. And when that snake is lifted up on a pole, people guaranteed to die by the venom in their bodies were miraculously allowed to live by God's grace. And Jesus says, I came to be lifted up as that snake. I came to be hoisted up on a cross. I came to be nailed to a post. I came to be beaten and whipped and pierced and killed. I came to die on a cross so that all who look at that cross in faith, even though their sin guarantees that they should die, they will live forever, forever in heaven with me by God's miraculous grace. And even though their sin is fatal, even though it seems like their fate is sealed, if they look to me, if they just believe in me, they trust in me and my death, then they will be forgiven and granted eternal life. And so I'm going to level with you. These, these 15 verses in John, right, these are some of the most difficult passages in John to navigate. they are more coming. I'm not going to lie to you, all right? But with the analogies that Jesus uses, with the language barrier that we have from Greek to English, with the things that he talks about that Nicodemus would pick up right away and we don't, this can be a difficult section to grasp. And I don't know how good a job I've done of making it clear. So I want to close out today by just putting this in terms and words that we use and can understand here in 2016 what Jesus is telling Nicodemus here because it's just too important. And the first is this, we, can, we can't change this language. The first is this, to experience eternal life in heaven, you must be born again. It's absolutely required. No one gets there without it. And being born again simply means this, you have new life in Jesus Christ. Which brings us to number two. You can't earn a new birth. There's not enough good that you can do. You don't have near enough power to make this happen. Think about it, you don't have power to ever do this. You didn't cause your first birth did you you don't have the power to create yourself you can't make the second one happen either 
can't earn your way to God. You, you, you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't earn your way to eternal life. This is what you have to do. You have to submit and surrender to the one who came from heaven to make a way for you. And Jesus Christ came down from heaven and lived the perfect life that you and I cannot and have not lived. And then he died on the cross as a perfect substitute for our sins. And he defeated death three days later by rising again. And in doing all that, Jesus guarantees for us two things. The first guarantee is this. If you surrender your life to him, if you believe that he died for you and rose from the dead, then he forgives you of your sins. You are born again. You have new life in him. And you'll live forever in heaven with him in complete and utter perfection. And the second guarantee of all that is this. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection guarantee that he is the only way you can be born again. That you have absolutely zero chance of getting to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. You have zero chance of a fulfilled, abundant life here on earth, an eternal life beyond, apart from Jesus Christ. Because nobody came from heaven other than him. Nobody else died for you other than him. No one else defeated death for you other than him. Nobody else offers you what he does. And so if you're trusting in anything other than him, that's not going to end well for you. And I know that's not popular to say in 2016, but I promise you this. We love you enough here to tell you what you need to hear more than what you want to hear. You need him. Which brings us to number three. Wherever you are in your spiritual walk around this room, your, your calling today is to look at the cross. If you've never given your life to Jesus, you, you wonder if it's worth it. Just look at the cross. Look at the Son of God suffering in immense pain and dying for you and realize that if he loves you that much, he's worthy of surrendering your everything to. And if you're a follower of his and you're, you're sitting here and you're fretting out and worried about the political climate of the election season, man, stop, just look at the cross. And on it, you're going to see the King of Kings defeating all our enemies and you will be reminded that he will reign supreme through all times. If you're a follower of his and you're going through a time of suffering and you're doubting whether or not he's for you, just look at the cross. Man, the one who took that on for you is always working for your good. If you've recently lost a loved one, you're facing a scary diagnosis, you, you, just, you just feel scared or defeated by our greatest enemy, death, then look at the cross. And on the cross, you'll see God willingly taking on death in order to defeat its power over you. You know, death has no say over you if you're in Jesus. It has no say over you because of the cross and the empty tomb. If you're worried about something that someone you love is facing, look at the cross. If, you, if you're facing something scary, uncertain yourself, then look at the cross. You'll see your king willingly taking on pain and hurt for you. And it will embolden you knowing that he would, if he would go there for you, he's right there with you right now. There's a lot of analogies. There's a lot of weird language. There's a lot of stuff we missed. But the, the goal in this conversation was clear. Jesus' one goal in this conversation was to get Nicodemus' attention off of all the things that he had done and off of all the lesser things that he was trusting in and get it squarely on the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, being hoisted on a cross. And so let's follow suit. Let's take the focus off of ourselves. Let's take the focus off of what you've done or are trying to do. Let's take the focus off of what you're facing. Let's take the focus off of, of what you're offering and just fix your eyes on Jesus and on his cross. And it's there that you'll find everything you need. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your son's bold and clear confidence in himself. God, we thank you that he's so clearly stated why he came. So God, around this room, Lord, this morning, I just pray you'd help us all to look at the cross. God, if there's any in our midst who've just been researching this, they've just been thinking about this, they, they can feel you pulling them in, and they, uh, they've been hesitant, they don't know what this is, I pray that this morning they would see Jesus on the cross and surrender their life to him. They would know he's the only way to be born again. They would know he's the only way to heaven. They would know that, that more than that, he's the only one who loves them like that. He's the only one who went through that for them. So God, we pray that in this moment, right now in their seat, they would just give their life to you. Just pray and ask you to take over and forgive them. God, around the room, those of us who've done that, I pray that uh, whatever baggage that we brought in this morning, whatever weights we're carrying, whatever, uh, whatever things that we're trying to control and manipulate by our own power, whatever hurdles we're facing, whatever, uh, whatever fears that are in life, we just, that we would just fix our eyes on the cross. Lord, that it would humble us, that we repent of what we need to repent of, that it would embolden us, that it would strengthen us to see Jesus take on that for us. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.